All right, everybody, we'll get started here. Uh, welcome to the Cato Institute. Um, my name is Chip Bishop. I work with student programs here at Cato. Um, welcome on this beautiful Friday afternoon. Um, I just want to tell you a quick little bit about ourselves. Uh, Cato on campus, it's the, uh, the student arm of, of the Cato Institute. Um, and we seek to connect all the work that Cato does and basically the ideas of liberty with you um, any way that we can. So if there's any suggestions you might have, feel free to contact me, the Director of Student Programs, Joey Kuhn, up there. Um, a couple quick things I wanted to highlight. Uh, we uh, have recently put a new effort on our Ask the Expert column on our website. Um, you can write in questions um, that you've just been dying to ask anyone about liberty. You know, we had one just submitted on how is the uh, health care bill going to affect me as an aspiring med school student. Um, so if you have any questions in that vein, we'll connect you with a scholar, put it up on the Internet, and you can, you can go on and check other people's questions uh, and the answers. Um, we just had a successful uh, contest run for the, uh, the Milton Friedman Liberty Prize dinner. Um, it's the biennial thing that Cato does. Uh, they, they award someone who's been advancing liberty really well, and we held a student contest, um, and we have uh, some, actually someone in the crowd who won the contest and has a, a ticket to the event. It's a nice little black tie reception, so follow the updates on the website for that. Um, also, we have an op-ed contest, and the deadline is May 15th, so if you're don't have enough school already, um, go ahead and write an op-ed contest. Uh, and the winner overall from all of the school year, they win uh, a free trip to Cato University in San Diego, California. And I went last year, and it's awesome. So feel free to like send us in a little op-ed, um, and we'll see if we, uh, we can send you to California. Um, one quick thing, uh, CEI, uh, Competitive Enterprise Institute, um, an awesome organization. They are actually holding a student contest, um, and it's you can either submit a 500 or 1,000 word essay, a five minute video, or a five minute podcast answering the question, how can students best communicate the message of liberty to the next generation? Uh, what they're actually doing is they're holding a conference for the winners of this. There's going to be 10 winners, and they're going to hold a conference, pay for you to be put up in a nice hotel, um, and it's going to be a sweet event. So the deadline for that is May 25th. Um, there's going to be handouts just like this out on the table, and uh, there'll also be a link on the Cato on Campus website if you're interested in that. It'll be a great time. And you also get uh, a $500 stipend, so some cash in your pocket for the summer. Um, that's about it. We're going to bring up Dennis Craig. He organizes the... Oh, one quick thing. Uh, Lee Doran is in the back. If He's the one that's organizing the CEI thing, and he's... Uh, an awesome advancer of liberty. You can follow him at How the World Works on YouTube. Um, does some great, some great blogs and some great works for liberty. So um, he'll be the one that's that's manning this. So if you can't talk to me or want to go to him directly, feel free. Um, thanks, Lee. Uh, we'll bring up Dennis Craig. He organizes the DC Forum for Freedom. Uh, he helps get the scholars uh, to agree to come talk to you guys. Um, so he's going to come up and welcome Dennis Craig. Um, like Chip said, it's a beautiful day outside. I'm glad you guys came out. I think by now everybody knows what the D.C. Forum for Freedom is and what we do, but I've actually seen some new faces in the crowd that haven't been here. So before I introduce our speaker, I'd like to just give you a, uh, a short overlook on what the D.C. Forum for Freedom is and what we do. Um, basically, it's a collective of... Collective... 
that word's kind of scary. Um, it's a group of students uh, from different student organizations, Liberty student organizations all over the D.C. area. Um, I'm at George Washington. We have students from American University, George Mason uh, University, and um, a lot of others. But we get together and we do great things like this. Uh, Cato's helped us out so much uh, this academic year. Every month we've come here and, and we've had a lecture uh, from from one of their scholars on an array of different topic topics, and I want to thank them for giving us those resources and really helping us out. But we also attend each other's events. We've all put out some outstanding outstanding events um, all throughout the academic year. It's been really exciting. It's just a way to continue to network, to be involved in each other's organizations, you know, know about different events and what's going on. And, um, you know, with the success that we've all had this year, I'm, I'm really looking forward to next academic year. I think it's going to be a, a really exciting year, and <clears throat> I know we have a lot of great things to come. But with that being said, I'd like to introduce our, um, our scholar for today. <clears throat> Excuse me. Mr. Jim Harper uh, is the Director of Information Policy Studies, and he focuses on the complex issues of adapting law and policy to the unique circumstances of the information age. Dr. Harp, uh, Mr. Harper is a member of the Department of Homeland Security's Data Privacy um, and Integrity Advisor Committee, Advisory Committee. His work has been cited in USA Today, um, the Associated Press, and a lot of other um, media outlets as well. Uh, he's appeared on the Fox News Channel, CBS, MSNBC, and uh, many other um, television stations. <laughs> His scholarly articles have appeared in the Administrative Law Review, the Minnesota Law Review, the Hastings Constitutional Law Quarterly, and recently Mr. Harper wrote the book Identity Crisis, How Identification is Overused and Misunderstood. Mr. Harper is the editor of, uh, sorry if I'm mispronouncing this, uh, Previsilla.org, uh, a web-based think tank devoted exclusively to privacy, and he maintains online federal spending resource at WashingtonWatch.com. Mr. Harper holds a JD from US, or UC Hastings College of Law, and um, he'll be giving a talk on intellectual property and the great debate that many of us libertarians have. So with that being said, I'd like to um, welcome our speaker. Thank you. Thank you, Dennis. Thank you all for being here. Um, you all, of course, as young people are thinking about your careers and what you're going to do with your lives, I'll tell you right now that you're, you're way further ahead of uh, me when I was at your age because there's no way I would have been caught dead on a Friday afternoon at a place like this listening to a guy like me. So uh, thank you. Thank you for coming here. I hope to be a, a, a little bit entertaining, and I guess there's free beer afterwards, so maybe that's a little bit of a draw for, for people like me. Um, Dennis's uh, introduction was was a good a good description of, of some of my background. I'll tell you a little bit more about what it means to to work in information policy. It's kind of an issue area that I made up when I got here to Cato about five and a half years ago. They said, um, "What do you want your title to be?" And I, I was pr replacing a guy who was the director of technology studies, and I didn't think I was going to be doing technology necessarily because technology includes like fertilizer and space programs and things like that. And really what I, what I focus on is information. So uh, there's a lot of different dimensions to information, and I'll describe some of them. I spend most of my time actually on privacy, so thing, right and wrong with information use. How do you control information when it's out there? How can it be fairly used? How is it unfairly used? And things like that. Uh, also telecommunications, 
how does information get from point A to point B? That includes old-style regulation of phone services and, and telecom, but also Internet governance, how the domain name system works and how it's controlled, regulated, that kind of thing. And, of course, I cover intellectual property, and that's what I'll talk to you about today is intellectual property. Um, how many of you folks are familiar just with the basic intellectual property doctrines, like patent and copyright? It's maybe half or a little bit more than that. I'll, I'll, I'll describe a little bit of how they, um, how they work, what the intellectual property doctrines are, but I'm going to talk about it in a very different way than I think a lot of you are used to uh, talking about it when you do. Um, I'm, I love ideology, and I use ideology all the time. I work at an ideological think tank, for heaven's sake. But I think a lot of people sort of uh, form their opinions about intellectual property based on ideology without being able to back it up. Some people say information wants to be free. Well, why is that? That's not, there has to be an explanation for, her, for that idea or that ideology. Others say that property deserves protection. Well, why is that? Let's talk about that. And I think there, um, the, the argument is, is uh, will we'll go better if people step back a little bit from their sort of ideological conclusions about intellectual property and think through, think through the problems. And I, and I think I've done a little bit of that, and I'll maybe help you to do that, do some of that today um, as well, because I want to talk about intellectual property as information policy. Like I said, I work on the whole, a whole range of information policies, not just intellectual property, so I have, have a sort of different view than a lot of folks. Let's start out with, with the question, what is information? Uh, I think we all kind of know what information is, but we never have really thought thought about it very much. There are sort of interesting, maybe philosophical questions about whether information exists if if nobody has ever conceived of it. Does a does a tree falling in a forest make a sound? Does information that nobody will ever think of actually exist? Maybe there's a planet somewhere that nobody has ever thought of, where beings no one can imagine are doing things we can't even understand. Does that information exist? Fundamentally, who cares? But we do have to think about uh, about the whole field of information, and, and the way I think about it is that is that it's everything we can know. So the information that I think about is everything we can know, and there's amazing amounts of it, not just billions, quadrillions. I don't know how to say the the number of illions uh, of bits of information there are out there. Uh, each of you, with each passing moment, is producing hundreds of pieces of information. I can look at you, I can see how light reflects off you, and, and, I, and I create an image of it in my brain. That's all information. Everything I'm doing is, is I'm just spinning off information all the time. Um, and of course, the information we most often think about are things like books and speeches and um, movies and writings and music and, and, and more, uh, a more narrow area of information. But all of this is information. We have to deal, figure out how to deal with all of it. When we talk about privacy, sometimes it is the fact that light bounces off of you and is captured by somebody, somebody else's uh, retina. Uh, sometimes it's, it's stuff that you put online or things that you do online or places that you go online. Each of these are things, all these things are producing information that we have to think about. In a sense, information is, is what I call cognitive and volitional product. Now, that's the stupidest name anyone's ever given to anything, but that's the best description I can come up with for all the stuff that constitutes information. Cognitive and volitional product. Cognition is thinking. Volition is moving. Thinking and moving is what creates information that we humans recognize. So when I do this, that's a new piece of information for all of you. When I think this, that's a new piece of information for me. None of you know what it is, by the way. 
got something on you. Now let's talk about um, property just a little bit because we all kind of know what property is, but many of us haven't thought through all the steps. When you get into law school, you may spend a lot of time, uh, should you, should you want to go that route, if you hate yourself. Um, you'll spend a lot of time studying what property is, and I'll go through it real quickly. Um, property is a set of conventions that we have in society to, to, so that we work better together with each other. Uh, as to physical things, we assign property rights so that people uh, work well together in the context of scarcity. If there's just one apple, no two people can be eating it at, at the same time unless they really love each other. And, uh, and if two people try to, to eat the same apple, they're likely to fight. So we create property rights to organize the system of goods we have so that, so that people know whose stuff is what, so that people know whose land is what, and that they can start to cooperate, maybe trade property so that, so that everybody gets along, everybody gets wealthier. It's a, good, it's a good set of rules. There are more specific ways to think about property in the, sort of legal, in the legal conception of it. And there, there are some, in law, we think of it as a sort of a bundle of sticks. It's a sort of a bundle of different rights that we, that we give to property. One is the right to exclude. That is because, because I own this cup, I get to tell you that you can't have it, right? I'm excluding you from, from using it, from drinking from it. And my life is better for it. <laughs> There's also the right to use. It's mine. I get to drink from it. I just did. I feel refreshed. You're all still suffering. Uh, the right of alienation. That is, I can sell it. Uh, wouldn't be worth much to you, but I might get a penny or two. Acquisition, likewise, that's that's the acquiring of something you could you you might sell me the the next cup of water I want. And then there's preservation. That's the idea that that it's mine. I can preserve it as my own. I can hold it. I can make sure that it doesn't tip over and things like that. In the case of the the cup of water, these are all the kinds of things, the kinds of rights that go into uh, what we call property. We're going to put together information and these property concepts in just a little bit. So put those, put those aside in your head. Because next I want to turn to this big, this big field of information I talked about. And I create a little printout. I hope all of you pick, pick this up, this one pager with this um, silly little chart on it. Because this is my way of thinking about information, at least the, the information that's relevant to us, putting aside the, the uh, philosophical nonsense I said earlier. What, what, what information matters? What, how, do we, how do we graph the information that we're going to work with? Whether, it's, whether we're trying to figure out how to protect privacy or whether we're trying to, to figure out how to protect intellectual property. And basically, I've put information on a, on a, on a graph. And on the x-axis, you see I've used the, the uh, Microsoft Word's finest graphics to produce this. Uh, on the x-axis, you've got, you've got conscious effort toward creation. So on the left on the left hand side you'd have you'd have facts that are just created they just exist. What color is my tie, right? Does everybody know what color my tie is? So you're very advanced compared to where I was when I was in college. I wouldn't have been able to recognize what color this was. Um, it's a very mundane fact. Put it on the put it at the left end of the of the of the spectrum. Now think to yourself, what's the square root of 81? That takes a little bit more work to produce. I see some some eyes rolling. Sorry about the math problem. Put a little put a little further to the to the right in the. Uh, did I say right earlier? Left is low, right is high. Put a little bit to the to the right on the graph. 
Now tell me, what's your plan for the rest of your life? That you may not have gotten to yet, but that takes a little bit more effort to get to. And so that starts to move out to the right on, this, on the x-axis. Now on the y-axis, we talk about value, right? The color of my tie is very low value. Anybody's got access to it. It's not very interesting. It might not even go with this shirt very well. Put it down at the bottom of the y-axis. What's your plan for making a million dollars? What's your plan for making a billion dollars? Well, if you were to tell me, I might use it. And so that starts to creep up on the y-axis. It's higher value. Information that's of higher value moves up that axis. And so we can start to figure out where we would put different types of information on this graph. And I've written, I've written um, on, the, on the graph some things. Mundane facts are absolutely in the south. Important facts are over, they're over to the left, but they start to move up. Important facts like uh, where you live, what kind of car you drive, if you have a car. Maybe you're thinking about buying a car. That's an important fact to some people. Um, where you shop, where you've shopped in the past, where you're thinking of shopping in the future. These are important facts. I'm thinking about commercial enterprises. might want to reach out to you if you're thinking of buying a new sweater, if you're thinking of buying a new hat, if you're thinking of going to a soccer game versus a football game, whatever it may be. These facts start to matter to other people in society, and so their value rises. There are fact collections, and in fact, there's a, there's a, a whole industry and maybe a couple of different um, important segments of an industry that simply try to collect facts and interesting information about people like you so that they can draw you in for commercial purposes. It's uh, uh, credit reporting. There's just plain consumer reporting where they collect information about what people like, what people want, what people want to do, and they gather this. They use this to market back to you, obviously issuing credit and things like that. They, they uh, take a great deal of care. These fact collections are often made up of entirely mundane facts. Jim Harper bought a brown tie. Well, maybe all he buys are brown ties, and all of a sudden you've got a, a bit of information that starts to matter, and so that's moved up the, up the, uh, the y-axis there. Sort of near the top, you have consumer data and credit reports. There's a formal industry there where people are collecting information and selling it. Mundane facts turned into something of value, though the conscious effort toward creation was very low because these are just things you did. Trade secrets also fit up there. Now let's move to the right side of the, of the effort scale, and we'll get to some of the traditional intellectual property doctrines. These are things that people consciously took pains to create that also have value. You see, we're going to cross over a line where on one side, toward the left, it says not IP, that is not intellectual property, and toward the right, it says intellectual property. We'll come back to, to, to that decision to call one thing one and one thing the other. But the things that people took a conscious effort to create and these things that are of value, we've decided as a society that we're going to give those legal protection. And so you'll see up in the upper right corner that we have patent, trademark, and copyright. And just, I've just put little bubbles. Those, those bubbles aren't meant to represent that that's the area they occupy. There's some are bigger and some are smaller. There's no real good way to conceive of that. Patent law is law that, that gives the discoverer, inventor of a new process the right to use that process for a period of time. So if I were to invent a successor to the bicycle that was better, maybe it uses um, five wheels in a very clever way that nobody's ever come up with before, I can take a patent out on that, and it prevents anyone from, from creating this new bicycle um, for, the period of the, for the period of the patent. If, if, somebody, if somebody else 
comes up with the same idea somewhere else, not having copied my invention, I still own the patent, and that person will be obligated to pay me if they produce this bicycle for themselves because I have the exclusive right to use that idea. That's patent law. Copyright law gives the creator of an expressive work the right to produce copies and the right to control the production of copies of that work. So that's, we're talking about music, we're talking about books, TV shows, movies, and all kinds of different things. Uh, Unlike patent, if somebody else were to create the same expression somewhere else and not copy what I've done, they can produce as many copies of their, their expression as they want. We might go to court and find out whether they actually copied me or not. But if they, if they produced it themselves, they can produce as many copies as they want and do what they want. There's a lot of complexity to both of these doctrines, but these are the sort of leading intellectual property doctrines that we, that we think about today. Trademark, we're gonna, well, I'll talk about just a little bit, but we'll put it off to one side. Because it's most closely related to anti-fraud, trademark is the idea that you assign a name to a, a product or service or, a, or, a, or some other symbol that signifies who, who has produced it. So Coca-Cola we all recognize as a prominent trademark. And we know that if we buy a Coca-Cola product, it's going to have a, an expected uh, set of properties. If it's, a, if it's a product of the Pepsi-Cola company, it'll have a different set of properties. And companies use their trademarks to signify to consumers this is a high-quality product. Or they might argue that the other guys is a low-quality product, that kind of thing. But trademark is basically in a, a sort of an anti-fraud protection, and it's not really at the heart of what we're going to talk about today. An important thing to remember about copyright, which I should have mentioned while we were looking over this um, silly XY chart of mine, is the the little line that's pointing um, down and to the left. And it's a little bit hard to read on there, but it says fixed in a tangible medium. Copyright copyright law today allows people rights in the things that they produced in their expressions if it's been fixed in a tangible medium of expression. Now, that's a legalistic phrase that basically means once, once you write it down, or once you make that movie, once you rec- make a recording, that's when you have a copyright. There aren't copyrights in dances, but there are copyrights in the description of the dance. Uh, there aren't copyrights in soccer games, but there are copyrights in videotapes of soccer games because those are things that are fixed in a tangible medium of expression. Understand that typing something into a computer is fixing it into a tangible medium of expression. It's being recorded as ones and zeros in the computer. And so an email or an IM or a text message is fixed in a tangible medium of expression, and under current copyright law, it's copyrighted. It's copyrighted material. This brings us to the subheader of today's talk, why you're always stealing people's stuff and people are always stealing yours. Is because every time you send an email, you're creating something copyrighted, and every time you forward an email of somebody else's, uh, you're violating somebody's copyrights. So it's a little problem that we're going to have to we're going to have to address at some point here in the future with intellectual property law. The the arrow pointing down says that with shows that with time and progress in technology, more and more of us are becoming copyright creators. We're creating copyrighted works. The question is what to do about all that. So what's right and wrong? in the area of of protecting these things? What what should the rules be? Should there be rules at all? This is the question that I think think is important to address, and it's important to address uh, sort of from the beginning, not just from what we already know about intellectual property. There are are really three different ways, I think, of of thinking about um, uh, the, the rules around intellectual property. 
Uh, one is uh, basically uh, uh, Ayn Rand's expression about, uh, about intellectual property. She's very influential, of course, with libertarians. And I don't know if she gave it a heck of a lot of thought, but there are a few passages in her work that indicate that she thought that intellectual property was um, un- basic, basically a natural right. That was that somebody who came up with an idea, and she had this idea of fixing it in a tangible medium, somebody who came up with an idea and created the first physical instantiation of it, thereby secured essentially a, a, a permanent right to the idea that created it. So if I created the, the, the five-wheeled bicycle, the fact that I produced that bicycle the first time gave me uh, the, the right in, in, in justice to always have ownership of that idea and so that, so that, um, that it's a, sort of an essential part of, of, uh, of right that, that I should have that. So by fixing the idea in a tangible medium, I had the right to the intangible idea forever. Now, another way of of arguing about intellectual property is basically utilitarian, and that's the the, the perspective that the U.S. Constitution takes, where it argues that that uh, uh, Congress has or it gives Congress the power to to write intellectual property laws uh, to to advance the progress of of the arts and sciences. The idea being that intellectual property laws should give these protections to ideas and expressions and inventions so that there will be more creation of them, so that people will be able to profit from the creation of these things. And that's probably the dominant, uh, the dominant theory today that holds is that, is that when people get property rights over ideas and expressions and inventions, they will produce more of them because they're able to profit from them. But another, another approach that's out there that's very interesting is the idea that there should be no regulation in this area at all. That is no top-down regulation. People are always free to regulate themselves and to, and to, to control their own behavior. But there should be no legislation at all in this area, and that creators of uh, expressions and creators of inventions uh, should dispose of them the way they will, and that government shouldn't step in at all to, to affect what happens with, with mu- music and movies and my uh, five-wheeled bicycle. Well... Uh, Hearing all that, probably a lot of you, you were naturally, your brains were going to the ideology. You were going to where you, where you think the answer should be. Maybe some of you are inclined to think, yeah, I'm a, I'm a serious, crazy libertarian, serious, crazy libertarian, um, so I don't think there should be any regulation. Some of you are really practical people, economic types, and you think, well, of course you need intellectual property laws in order to create the right incentive structure. Well... The, both of those ideologies have some merit, but I think it's worth talking through um, the administrative problems. How do, you, how do you administer these three different proposed ways of dealing with intellectual property? The Randian idea, that, that you own an idea because you've created the first physical instantiation of it. There are some problems with that. Can anyone think of one? I can, lucky for you. How do you figure out who owns what? How do I figure out who made, who created the, the first dais like this so that if I want to build one, I know who to pay? Sometime in our history, it might be 30 or 40 years ago, somebody started using the word cool not to describe lower in temperature, but to describe uh, hip or happening or 
Maybe it was preceded groovy, but whatever it is, somebody came up with this new invention, this new way of using the word cool. Who was it? How do I pay them? How do I reward them? How does society reward them for coming up with this new use of language, a change in, in our protocols? It's a difficult problem. And so the Randian view, I think, um, has difficult administrative problems. Are rights really perpetual? If they are, I've got to find the successor of the person who came up with the idea of using the word cool to mean groovy or awesome. My colleague used the word awesome three times in, uh, in his, his opening presentation. I, I, I hope to be awesome with you today. <laughs> there are similar problems in the, in the constitutional utilitarian and the current statutory uh, uh, regime for intellectual property, but the problems are ameliorated a little bit. For many years, there was a registration requirement in the copyright area. That is, you had to put an R inside of a circle. I'm sorry, a C inside of a circle. <laughs> Someone caught me there. You put a C inside of a circle to indicate that, that you uh, were exercising copyrights in the thing you'd created. That, gives, that gave notice to people that this was a copyrighted work. And there was also registration options. You have registration options still today. Submit a work to the Copyright Office, asserts that you you're, intend to exercise uh, copyright control over it, and you'll get a better deal if you try to pursue your copyrights against somebody after you've, uh, you've submitted your material to the Copyright Office. Uh, the same goes today with patents. You still have that, where people submit patents to the Patent Office. When a patent is approved, published, it's out there for people to uh, for people to discover, although search problems are quite difficult with so many patents coming out these days, uh, they are hard to find. This, this is quite different from, from what we have in the physical world. When we talk about um, ownership of goods, we have highly developed and fairly easy to administer rules uh, to find out who owns what. People understand naturally because they're taught from birth what a property line is about doors and windows keep you out of buildings so that you don't wander into them and pick up stuff that you think is just nobody's and walk out with it. We have highly developed uh, customs around theft and things like that to make sure that people understand uh, who owns what and who doesn't own what. But it's much more difficult to administer. So, so today, like I said, anything fixed in a tangible medium of expression is copyrighted. But how do, you, how do you find out who owns the copyright? How do you find out whether the copyright is still in force? There's a large problem called orphan works, that is, uh, uh, creations that are out there and nobody knows who's, who owns it. Nobody knows who to pay. Nobody knows if they can use it, if they can make new copies of it. The third regime we talked about is having no rules at all. And that's very simple, obviously, because there are no rules. There's really nothing to administer. But I think most of you probably recognize the problem there. Uh, you may well take away the incentives that cause people to create new things. Uh, and, and accordingly, people will behave responsibly, and they, they, when they don't, don't create new things, we'll have a loss. We'll have a loss in our culture, we'll have a loss in our science, and generally society may be worse off if we don't create this incentive structure. Though it's very easy to administer, uh, maybe we'll all just sit stupidly and stare at walls rather than having movies to go to, music to listen to, and books to read, and that kind of thing. There are some counter-arguments to that, that very, uh, I think, intuitive uh, point about the, uh, the, what would happen in the absence of copyright law. Uh, we put out a paper a few years ago called Amateur to Amateur, The Rise of a New Creative Culture, which tried to describe how the 
the copyright area, the, the expression area, is changing with changes in technology. It used to be that having a printing press was, was prohibitively expensive. Um, almost nobody had them. They were huge, uh, cost vast sums. And so, so printing required all this, all this uh, uh, capital, capital-intensive uh, inter- infrastructure. Well, not just, not just printing, but all the steps in the creative process are getting easier and easier thanks to technology. So selection of what works are worth uh, producing, production of works. So we have, you have computers today that do as well as the, the biggest uh, recording studios did just 10 or 20 years ago. And so it's really easy to create, create excellent music with very inexpensive uh, technology. Uh, selection of what, uh, uh, what, what music and what creations are good promotion on the internet things like that these are all being cheapened and made made by by that i mean made less expensive not necessarily cheapened uh, by the internet and so there's less of a need for this for this huge infrastructure to have all this creation the suggestion being that maybe you'll get just as much creativity without the same level of intellectual property law without the same level of copyright law or maybe with none at all and there's a very interesting book called Against Intellectual Monopoly by Michele Boldrin and David Levine. And they argue that across the board, we're worse off with intellectual property laws than, than we would be without. Uh, the, the most recent creation, the newest song that you just heard, will soon be an input to the next song. Any scientific discovery is really riding on the backs of prior scientific discoveries. And so if you take a discovery and you lock it up in a patent, People can't use it to experiment. People can't use it or can use it less. Uh, they, they have less access to it to experiment, less access to build a new thing, to invent a new device. Um, sampling of music, you get less of it, so you get less creativity, less reflection and refraction across the society. And so we're worse off in the, in the intellectual property environment than we would be without. It's a fascinating book. I don't know if it's the, the right answer, but I think it's really worth investigating. The most difficult case... And, and when I discuss this book, people always always go right to it, is pharmaceutical patents. Because patents are, uh, pharmaceutical patents are some of the most expensive uh, to produce. The, the investigation of novel drugs is very expensive. Testing and obviously going through the regulatory process at, processes at the FDA uh, take a heck of a long time and upwards of $800 million or a billion dollars to produce a single drug. And so it must be that you have to have patent protection in order to make a profit and thus, and thus to, to produce a drug. But Bolgen and Levine say in their book that the case for patents and pharmaceuticals is weak. And so apparently, even under the most favorable circumstances, patents are not good for society, for consumers, or in this case, for sick people. And they do a comparison over history of the, at a macro level of in the, uh, the pharmaceutical industries in different countries that had different levels of patent protection at different times. Some had none, and they find that, that these countries had burgeoning uh, pharmaceutical industries during the periods when they had no patent protection as compared to when uh, they did have patent protection. So that's the array of issues that arise in, in the intellectual property area. And it's my way of thinking about it, which is which is... Uh, a little different than most people's is to think about it as information. Uh, patents and copyrights lie on a spectrum along with personal information. And if we're going to create p- property rights in, uh, in some, some types of information, why are we not creating property rights in other types of information? 
And th these are questions that I continue to grapple with. I think you probably grapple with them on a more personal level when you decide whether or not you're going to uh, download a particular song that, that uh, you might be getting on a, on a site or through a service that isn't necessarily uh, legal. And that might be tough for some of you to decide about. It might be easy for some of you to decide about. But let's take a little while and discuss some of these things. Um, I'd be interested in your perspectives on intellectual property, particularly music and, and contemporary culture. And I might start by asking you um, a question that's perplexed me for a long time and was, most recently was driven home actually Wednesday night. Why is Lady Gaga so special? <laughs> any answers to that or any questions, comments you have about, uh, about what we've talked about? Yeah, please. Lady Gaga is catchy. Okay. Others on, on oh, we have a microphone? Pass it right here. Um, well, my personal view is that the copyright laws um, make the kind of like the publishers decide what the public is going to like before the public actually chooses. And they're going to like, but that's just, just a personal opinion. I never thought of it. I had a question for you, though. Mm -hmm. um, I, let's say, like in a static world where. Um, there is no scarcity with ideas, obviously. So everybody can get the music from an artist. So it would be for his interest to spread the music as to many people as he would if he just wanted to spread his music. But the profit motive, like, makes it um, harder for, like, in a, in a it's not in a non-static world. Um, if you, if the, how, if would there? Uh, well, I guess my question is, would there be less creations? Is the, is it? In, is there a study that proves that there's less creations when there are? Um, protected um, when the copyrights are not protected somehow I am I've yet to find the definitive study I think that the the Boldrin Levine book against intellectual monopoly is is a very interesting set of anecdotes about about what results from from intellectual property rules the study needs to be done and it's it's difficult because because you're trying to explore a part of human nature that might be very, might be widely varied across different disciplines. For example, maybe people will create music on their own because they enjoy doing it. Um, I go to parties where someone picks up a guitar and just plays. Nobody's paying him. He's getting free drinks. There might be some payment in that. Um, but maybe there's a maybe there's a widespread music culture without copyright. But are there movies of the of the kind we want without copyright? Uh, and in the patent area, will you get excellent, amazing new inventions if the person who creates it uh, can't profit from doing that? Perhaps the scientist will take the weekend off rather than work work through uh, forty you know work through forty days straight to come up with this fantastic new invention. It comes back to human nature, and it's an essential question of human nature that I don't think anybody has yet to answer. Uh, and that economic study, it's is is it's, it's possible that it could be answered through through that kind of study. Um, what's your uh, what's your opinion on uh, intellectual property in genetics? Uh, I seem to remember there was a federal court ruling not too long ago about uh, patents on genes, basically. Yeah, the, the I didn't I didn't study the ruling. I'm sorry to say, but I but I did see some some reporting on it, and, and as I understand it. There was a, a serious difference of opinion among the commentators on the case, what the case was about, um, and and one side believed that the patent was on genes, 
genes are the factual information, essentially, that reside inside each cell of your body. And the other was quite confident, I think, that, that they were uh, uh, patenting a process for using genes. I think patenting processes is, is probably appropriate. Pat- patenting genes, that is the actual information that's, that's found in your cellular structure, is probably not appropriate for patenting. So I can't comment on that case too directly, but, uh, but uh, patent is, is, I think its limits are being stretched in the, in the gene patenting area where, they're, where these processes are, that I don't understand well are, might, be, might be used to, to patent actual genes. First off, I wanted to uh, thank you for coming to speak to us today. This was very informative. Um, as a jazz musician, I can tell you that all creative work is uh, derivative. Um, there's not a single jazz lick that wasn't made before. And in fact, the entire you know, uh, genre of jazz music is in fact looking at licks that have been done before, rhythms that have been done before, and using them in a new way. And I, I, you know, I can say, not from experience, but I can say that within rap um, uh, and, and hip-hop, sampling is very much the same way. Uh, I had a question about incentives. Uh, the side um, that is in favor, advocates of um, many intellectual property right law, um, they often are talking about incentives as if incentivizing uh, certain types of um, intellectual property. I mean, the the need to incentivize them out overweighs the you know the freedoms that could be gained from making them not copyrighted. Um, but what I, what I wanted to ask about was with specifically with pharmaceuticals or with music and R and D. I mean, not R and D. Uh, yeah, research and development mm-hmm. um, with. I mean, from, at least from my understanding of economics, unless if you incentivize R&D to become less expensive, it's never going to become less expensive. Um, I mean, with theories of you know, economies of scale, if pharmaceuticals are so expensive to produce, there's going to be no incentive to be able to find ways to more effectively, um, and there's not going to be a market there for people to be going into R&D if you're making it prohibitive to only those large pharmaceutical firms that have the ability to go out and produce that. Um, so, I mean, what, what could be said about incentives um, from the other side, people you know, who are opposed to, to intellectual property rights, um, what can be said for incentives to actually increase the amount of R&D? Well, um, I, don't know that, I, I don't know that the, the problem is to find incentives to increase R&D, but rather incentives to increase creation of works and inventions. R&D is an in- intermediate step toward that. Um, so I, I think, frankly, the Congress is constantly working on ways to increase R&D, never mind that the actual goal is, is new stuff, new ideas. Uh, so I wouldn't take the policy problem to be increasing R&D. Um, but, the, but the area, the argument against intellectual property in, in pharmaceuticals is very, is very interesting, and I think it relies on a couple of, a couple of different ideas. One is that being the first to market has advantages enough to maintain profits. Uh, and related to that, the fact that there is an intellectual property protection uh, requires the creator of the drug to uh, constantly improve it rather than rest during, during the patent period. The, the, uh, the Against Intellectual Monopoly book uses the example of the Watt steam engine Sort of, it's uh, it's given as an example of the success of patenting. Very often, James Watt was an inventor in in um, England, came up with a steam engine that was under patent, and they have a graph in the book that shows the amount of horsepower produced by the steam engine during the period of the patent, and then as soon as the patent expires, the amount of uh, uh, horsepower produced by steam takes off 
because Watt and his partner pursued uh, claims against rivals under the patent law all the time during the pa- period of the patent, and when they couldn't anymore, everybody could use it. Watt and, Watt and his partner had to get back into the business of improving their steam engine. Likewise, they argue uh, the the, the uh, creators of pharmaceuticals would have to continue improving, continue improving. Um, it's it's plausible to me that that the first to market has these advantages that they know enough about their drug and its manufacturer and the details that they can stay a year ahead of the competition in terms of quality. People do trust uh, the first to market. Uh, typically, uh, you, you get you get brand advantages, trademark advantages, by being first to market, but. But I think it's a difficult question. I don't think it's a slam dunk by any means. How about you over here? I was wondering if you could comment uh, on the, well, two questions. One, on the general costs associated with FDA approval of the drug, because I imagine that makes up a substantial portion of the billion dollars or so. And also as a historical aside, um, my understanding is that the founders generally believed in natural law, and I was wondering if there was any historical reasoning for their inclusion of uh, property right protection in the Constitution. As to the cost of approval, I, I, don't, I can't quite quote you uh, what the costs are. Obviously, there's um, FDA approval includes human testing and, and things like that, things that probably would also go on in the absence of, of uh the regulatory regime, but it's undoubted that the regulatory regime produces additional costs. Uh, unfortunately, bureaucracies tend to be risk-averse, and so we, we probably pay a higher cost uh, in FDA in lives lost we don't know about because drugs aren't approved and aren't brought to market than we gain from, from the FDA approval process. Um, the founders, everybody fights over what the, what the founders uh, thought. I, I think it was Jefferson who argued, um, who is quoted as saying that uh, sharing an idea is like lighting someone else's candle. Nobody loses Nobody loses anything in the, in the transaction, uh, and that's a good description of how intellectual property acts. That, that is, it, an information acts is that if you create new copies of it, nobody's deprived of the old copy. Um, but I... I Stay away from those arguments because they're just they're just appeals to history. And I think coming up with the administrative, uh, coming up with a system that you can administer, is the real problem. And so thinking about how information moves, how information operates in society, is is as important to me as as what the founders said. We just want to I think we want to maximize both liberty and wealth if we possibly can, and it's striking the right balance is is the problem at hand. How about right down here? It's more of a question of feasibility. Um, thank you. In a world where uh, information is more readily available, um, wireless is becoming more popular, uh, the speed of acquiring information is increasing, has that really impacted the, uh, like, debate on, like, information security or information protection? I guess uh, specifically... Has like the information security field or other or, or the law been able to keep up with um, people stealing information? And has there been any kind of studies done on any kind of dropping like drop in productivity from other for I guess any industry? Um, 
I'm not clear if you're talking about information security in its orthodox sense, cybersecurity, or you're talking about intellectual property type issues. I was speaking more to like cybersecurity. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, cybersecurity is a huge, huge area, a huge problem that uh, nobody really knows the answer to. And so the losses, the losses are huge, but the question is whether the losses outweigh the gains of having all the communications and commerce and, 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 and communications infrastructure that we have. I've testified in Congress about cybersecurity, uh, if only to point out to them that it's really not their problem. Imagine if you imagine if you came across an all new world. So it's 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 fair to analogize the the online world as a new world. It's it's uh, the the mechanics of it are different. We don't use our eyes to see other people, or we we see representations of them on computer screens. It's sort of just a if you if you started an entirely new space. Let's call it cyberspace. But and let's use that analogy to think about how we would secure that new space. How do we secure this space? Did a government come along and secure Earth? No. Um, governments to some degree, but more so individuals and businesses and, and associations secure the little pieces of Earth that matter to us. So when you go to your apartment, you lock the door. When you leave your apartment, you lock the door. Um, you, you lock the door on your car when you close it. These are the things that secure earth space, each of us being responsible for our piece of it. And so the, the owners, I've argued, the owners of, of data, the owners of computers, the owners of networks are responsible for securing their piece of cyberspace. The idea of coming top down and figuring out how to, cure, to secure cyberspace is really ridiculous, frankly. Um, it's, it's, it's hundreds if not thousands of different kinds of problems that will be handled by millions of people over years and years. Intellectual property is, is affected by all this, obviously, because um, people access uh, protected works. They share protected works. Uh, it's, it's called piracy by people who, who feel strongly that it's, that it's stealing. Um, other people would change, would change the rules so that, so that uh, 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 these works can be protective and the incentive structure that people believe um, causes this stuff to be created can be preserved. There's a great... Um, a uh, blogger, a tech blogger named Mike Masnick, who blogs for Tech Dirt, he's not really a policy guy, and I think that's that's refreshing. Actually, he's not he's not uh, grinding an axe against copyright, but he's constantly arguing to his audience: don't rely on copyrights for your business model, because if you create something that's interesting enough to people, they're going to steal it. So if you try to get paid for your copyrighted work, you're going to fail. Rather, you should treat expressions, these things that people can digitize and 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 move around. Treat those as advertising for something that you can exclude people from. Sell T-shirts, sell concert tickets, sell services. So we have you know companies like Red Hat, which sell services and software and, and open source software. Um, it 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 it's degrading, I think, to a lot of people who don't don't want their creations to be advertising because advertising is regarded as you know yucky. But but creating cool things puts you in a position to monetize. Uh, to make money on on the things that you've created, so Masnick's really interesting tech dirt because because it's a, just a practical argument, and I think the practical arguments are are very important to to look for. Other questions or comments? How about you? Uh, my question is just about the length of copyright. So I, I know um, uh, 
after like the Sonny Bono Copyright Act, I mean, it kind of it's kind of a long time now, uh, and it almost is the Randian kind of forever thing if you can convince the government that you created it. Um, so my question would be to you, uh, just empirically or based on data you've seen, like what what do you think the optimal length would be? Should we adopt like a very utilitarian kind of middle of the road constitution? You know, the constitution does say a limited time. So what what do you think the best limited time would be? That's it's very hard to just say what the limited time should be, but I but I think the consensus is that it should be shorter. Um, people people do create things, and I think there's a lot of sort of internal drive on people's parts to, to create things. Just to to confess the way I think about it, something like six years seems like it would be about right. I think the original copyright term was seven years. That was when you when you couldn't exploit works when you had to literally take a printing press and go like that to and now you can now you can exploit works at at light speed across the world and so copyright terms probably should should grow shorter with technology because you have you have more opportunity to exploit them in a shorter period of time but that's a throwaway number what we really need is to is to have some kind of study so that we actually do have that kind of balance uh, people do object i think rightly to the extension of copyright terms which which is pretty clearly based on uh interests going to Capitol Hill and saying we need an extension because our big-eared mouse is going to is going to go out of out of copyright protection and then we're we're really in trouble. Um, copyright law does exhibit the rent-seeking behavior that you see in other legal regimes where companies go to Capitol Hill and I don't think knowing what I know about the lobbying business which I used to be in nobody is is thinking to themselves I'm going up to the hill to seek rents uh, to rip off my competitors, but the end result of the of the the process is that they are using federal law to wall off competition to make more money for producing less. And so the, the same kind of behaviors you see in chemical industry regulation, you see in copyright law. And so I'm very dubious that the current length is the right length. It should be quite a bit shorter. Let's take one or two more before we wrap up. I know I know you've had. A, do you still have your question over here? I, don't, I worry about being myopic and, you know, picking the, the ones right in front of my face. Um, because of how unenforceable a lot of these copyright laws, is, laws, laws are, where, where do you predict policy is going to end up going on it? Like, what's your prediction for the future of IP? Um, I think that copyright, you have to separate them out because patents, patent and copyright aren't su- subject to the same technological dynamic. But copyright is very difficult to protect now and will continue to be very difficult to protect and over a long period of time may start to recede. Uh, It'll take a while because of the dynamic I just spoke about where the interest in having copyright um, uh, uh, protected and copyright terms lengthened, those discrete interests will, will continue to battle very hard to protect themselves. And the diffuse interest of users... No, no one of us has has the same interest as all the people who go up to Capitol Hill representing copyright industries, but the dis the disjuncture between what how the world really works and the, and the amount of information that's being passed around all the time and the the, the um, remixing and mashups and things like that the disjuncture will continue to grow and grow and grow until there's some inflection point. It might be I'd have to say 30 or 40 years from now before we get some change where everybody just says, "Hang on, this has gotten ridiculous. Let's all." Uh, let's all go to a new regime. My concern in the interim is that there isn't too much damage done to to other 
interests and other laws that affect the Internet and affect our privacy, for example. A few years ago, uh, the Recording Industry Association, um, on behalf of its clients, um, sued Verizon, a famous case called RIAA versus Verizon, trying to get an interpretation of of the Digital Millennium Copyright Act that would require ISPs to turn over the names of their users without a, a court-issued subpoena. It was sort of an expedited expedited process. Um, this is a, a process that was rife for abuse because it doesn't have the – it doesn't require the filing of a lawsuit and naming of parties and things like that. It was just, I'm a copyright holder. I want to find out who that is. And there's so many ways to abuse that by copyright holders and by non-copyright holders. That is, someone wanting to find out, um, suspecting that, that someone on a particular chat room – um, was a was the their spouse their ex spouse they might go and use this process to to violate people's privacy and so we had we had a real concern for a time with that that with that interpretation of the DMCA that there were going to be big holes blown in some of the privacy protections on the internet which are already weak luckily the DC Circuit um, I think found correctly in that case that the DMCA was improperly interpreted by the RIAA in their arguments so um, it'll take a long time for the for the legal regime to come to terms with the new communications environment. And the worry is that that a lot of the good things, the way the, the privacy protections of the Internet might be broken down in the course of that fight. Let's take one last one. Seeing none, okay. Well, the, there's a huge – the question was if I w- would comment on trade-related intellectual property issues and the dynamics between the developed and non-developed world. I will just describe the fight because I haven't, I haven't uh, formed a final opinion on it. The developed world, advocates in the developed world, are working very hard to decide what the undeveloped world is going to look like in terms of intellectual property. The fights you see here – uh, between the, the, the people who want strong intellectual property protection and the folks who want weak intellectual pro- property protection are being exported. And they're trying to, many are trying to convince uh, trading partners of the United States to adopt strong intellectual property protections. And meanwhile, the other side are trying to, to prevent that happening. Uh, it's arguable that, that much of our, as, as, the, as the whole argument goes, that much of our wealth comes from having good intellectual property protection and a good rule of law. I don't know that it's a given that, that other countries can't improve as quickly or more quickly without intellectual property protection. It's just an open question. And I guess it's one for all of you to decide as you continue studying these difficult issues. With apologies for only partially educating you on only some of them, thanks for hearing me out today. All right. I would stand up, but I'm a little trapped by the computer on my lap. So please join us upstairs for reception. Uh, Some good treats. We'll have lots of conversation. And uh, thanks for coming.